need massive amounts of data to train these deep layered networks. And that's a tremendous amount of uh, compute intensive activity. You need to be able to get the data into the processor, uh, train the network and get it out, distributed across massive resources. And so we're able to do that at a scale that has never been done before. If you really want to get deep about deep learning, you couldn't talk to a better person than Jack Wells at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, which was established with the Manhattan Project before World War II and continues to be one of the world's hotspots for research and technology. We'll be discussing questions like, what has the lab learned about deep learning in its high-performance computing? And how can it help us understand what that means for the future of deep learning in the enterprise? Hi, I'm Des Blanchfield, and this is From Here to AI, a podcast that gives you real stories and best practices to help you navigate your journey to implementing AI. Today, I had the pleasure of having Jack Wells in the studio with me. Hi, Jack. How are you? How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for making time to catch up with us today. So, Jack, you're the Director of Science at Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. Uh, maybe just give us a quick background and to introduce yourself and, and, and what that actually is, what your role is, and, and what Oak Ridge is, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, sure. Um, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is a Department of Energy Science and Energy Laboratory, and it's home to world-leading research facilities for supercomputing and neutron science, uh, material science, uh, advanced manufacturing, and much more. Um, the Department of Energy has uh, laboratories across our country, actually 17 of them. Uh, the, Depart uh, the Oak Ridge uh, National Laboratory is the largest science and energy lab. We're located in um, East Tennessee, and uh, for the last 25 years, we've had a world-class uh, supercomputing center. Uh, it's now called the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. And your role, Director of Science, just give us a quick insight into kind of, you know, what, what's, what does that actual role entail? I mean, it's a, uh, it, it must be an exciting role, but, what, you know, when you jump out of bed and, and you head into work uh, as Director of Science at Oak Ridge, I mean, what, what does that actual role entail in, in, in high level? So our uh, business model is that of a user facility. So people uh, write scientific proposals to access our capabilities for scientific computing and data science. And um, if you will, I'm the, um, I'm the alliance manager for our major users. Um, I'm trying to make sure that uh, when we collect our uh, uh, requirements, that we capture the requirements that the scientists needs, um, that when we uh, operate our supercomputer, it's operated uh, with policies and um, procedures that are in their interest. Um, I want to make sure that the most uh, uh, high-profile, most productive scientists are the ones that are aware and have an opportunity to apply for our resources. And I, I get involved in celebrating their successes and communi communicating uh, their outcomes uh, to our sponsors and to the broader public. Now, before we get into too much detail about specifically that and the business model, um, I wonder if you'd mind if we just take a couple of minutes to get to know you a little bit better first uh, for folk who have tuned in. Um, maybe just a quick background and kind of, you know, where, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up and uh, where did you go to school? What, what's your background? So I grew up in uh, a small town in Kentucky, just uh, about 200 miles from Oak Ridge called Prestonsburg, Kentucky. Um, I grew up enjoying math and science. And um, in school, I fell in love with physics. 
um, decided I would go to graduate school to get a graduate education. And there I was introduced to a computational methods for solving the equations of physics, uh, simulation science, if you will. Um, when I had the opportunity to start working on my PhD thesis, I actually moved uh, in residence to Oak Ridge as a student and wrote my PhD thesis there in uh, theoretical physics. Um, after, uh, yeah, after that, I, um, and that was in the early days of parallel computing. So I got in on the ground floor on a lot of the concepts and the techniques and um, the, if you will, um, the urgency that's associated with solving problems on big, uh, big hardware. Um, after I got my PhD, I did three years of a postdoctoral fellowship um, at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Harvard. And then after that, I came back actually as a staff scientist uh, about 20 years ago. So I've been at the lab as a staff scientist working in uh, computational nuclear physics, uh, materials physics, chemical physics programs. Um, and in the last six years, I've had the opportunity to be the director of science of the Leadership Computing Facility, uh, which is a very uh, satisfying role because uh, of the breadth of scientific activity um, at our center. Wow, well, I guess fortuitous in many ways that you ended up doing a degree where you did, but also, uh, I guess, um, given the background that you've just given us, then thank you for that. Uh, in many ways, it seems that all roads would have led to uh, Oak Ridge in some form for you. Um, the career path, though, is fairly unique. You, you, you've got one of those career paths that uh, you'll eventually read a book about. Um, do you think that, uh, do you think for folk who are listening in, uh, as far as, you know, getting to this particular role currently, and, and you know, you've had, had a, a very deep scientific and mathematical background, um, the, there's still a very deep business requirement, though, that you've, you know, given you've come back, come from a, a, a scientific engineering background, you've clearly had to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of, of what the business side of the, the organization is about and kind of where the market's leading to and what the market's looking for as far as, you know, products and services go. So it must be an interesting challenge to sort of blend the science component of your brain with the business component that uh, the organization's looking for. These, uh, one of the reasons these supercomputers are uh, very, um, very uh, popular, if you will, if they le receive a lot of public support is that they're good for many things. They're good for physics and chemistry and biology, uh, but it's also uh, good for um, uh, um, climate science and atmospheric science, weather predictions. The same technology can be applied to medical applications, health applications, uh, defense applications, um, smart cities, um, and the list goes on. It's a pluripotent technology. And we know that computing in our everyday life is used for many different tasks. That's true also in scientific and engineering uh, research. When we try to engage with our user community, we want to make sure that we understand the requirements from our university-based users, from our laboratory-based users, and from business and industry that may want to be our user. We, we want to know what problems they want to solve in the future. And we try to integrate all that with um, what we know is going on with the computer companies like IBM or other people in the industry, what their roadmaps are. And um, we try to integrate uh, what our users need and where the industry is going um, to craft these supercomputers 
that are going to be able to push the capabilities on both fronts. Yeah, I guess when we you know when we think about supercomputers, often we we sort of think about science fiction movies and 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 war games type stuff because that's what the media throws at us and what uh, Hollywood throws at us. But really, you know, what I'm gleaning from all of that is it seems the bulk of what your core business and and and, and delivery is is actually around humanity solving real world things that are affecting real world people. And and I guess that is probably more and more the case uh, uh, with regard to the types of consumer you're having come to you now that that at some point there was a a a very i guess uh classical mathematical challenge as far as what a a high performance computer or supercomputer might have done but there's been a shift uh from what i understand um uh, around kind of the the desired use cases and workloads people are working on now not not from just pure mathematical problems but from slightly smarter problems and 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 things around uh not just general purpose ai but but particularly machine learning and deep learning um, tell us a little bit about that sort of whole shift uh, that you've seen the market. Uh, uh, you know, from from a business perspective, you must have to constantly be looking at what your users are looking for and and where they're going to be in three to five, maybe ten years, and try and keep ahead of that curve. It's all well and good for general purpose computing and, and banking and wealth management and 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 aviation to be thinking about consumers with smartphones uh, saving money and buying products online. But you must have to have a very long view lens to kind of look at where are we in three to five years. And uh, given the investment and time and effort to design and engineer and architect and build and implement and turn these big machines on, uh, that, that's a very unique and, and, and specific set of skills and challenges from a commercial aspect, surely, to see where those trends are going and see where that wave is going to, to be ahead of that curve and, and, and stay competitive and offer services. Well, in, indeed, um, if you look at the history of supercomputing, it's very much from a simulation science perspective. Um, areas of um, weather prediction and um, aerodynamics to build more effective airplanes. And there's been huge successes in that and huge economic returns. Um, um, but it, the vision is actually much broader than just those simulation science areas. The mission of Oak Ridge National Laboratory is, is to you know, based on scientific discoveries and innovations to make uh, innovation solve problems in clean energy and national security, and in so doing, create economic opportunity for our nation. So we try to take a very broad view of all those activities. Um, at DOE, there's tremendous investment in unique um, and world-class experimental facilities, uh, neutron sources, X-ray sources, uh, genome databases that can uh, enable new areas of science. And this, the size of this data has been exploding. And our scientists and engineers have been bringing those new data requirements to us over the last five years. This has been enabled by um, innovations in sensors and networking that's familiar to, I think, many of your listeners. Um, there's been a, maybe an even bigger explosion of data in the business world as a result of the Internet of Things and uh, large databases and just the need uh, to get control of the enterprise data that you have available to you in order to make di- business decisions for business intelligence and other applications. So this big trend is coming at us from science and engineering, similar, I think, to the way it's happening in business. Um, and so, we, indeed, we've been trying to understand what it means working with uh, leading scientists and engineers who are on the cutting edge of this, who can tell us what our life is going to really be like in five years or 10 years, what problems are we going to need to solve. We try to write those kinds of requirements into our request for proposals when we do a procurement opportunity, when we invite computer companies like IBM and others 
to make a bid on one of our big projects. And they, they are big uh, multi-million dollar um, opportunities, um, but that saddle we try to leverage what the scientists are doing with the roadmaps or you know, the directions that the computer companies are going anyway because of their own business model. Those two things we try to mix together in order to achieve our mission. Uh, this leadership computing phrase simply said means that we try to build the biggest supercomputer we can and, and make it available to the scientists and engineers who deserve it most based on the quality of the science proposals that they write as evaluated by uh, peer review. And, and we've been successful at, at that model. Um, understanding the, the science pool and, and the push from technology and trying to integrate that into our uh, compute and data center. It's, uh, it reminds me of kind of like the Formula One car racing challenge that uh, you've got top-end car manufacturers using the best technology and the best compute to build the fastest car, but we aren't necessarily all going to buy a Formula One racing car. We, we, we buy that the magic that comes out of that racing industry in the form of, you know, I guess, you know, cheap Honda or Civics that we drive around and go to the shopping mall every day, right? But now you're working on something that's called Coral. I remember reading about the, uh, something they yeah, referred to the collaboration of Oak Ridge, uh, Oregon and Livermore. Tell us, tell us about Coral and what that is and how that came about. This acronym Coral stands for the collaboration of Oak Ridge, Argon, and Livermore. We aspire to be a great computational science laboratory, but we're not the only great laboratory in the world. There are others. Two of these are our sister laboratories, Argonne National Laboratory and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And um, in early uh, 2012, uh, 2013, we were all uh, planning uh, to upgrade our uh, computers at about the same time scale. So um, DOE directed us to work together to try to drive efficiencies in the procurement process and um, to focus um, our brain power of all technical experts um, in order to have a better result. Also, we wanted to be more um, efficient with respect to the computer companies bidding on this opportunity so that they could write one proposal and access the opportunities on all three labs rather than uh, three proposals because writing those proposals is expensive for the computer companies. Oh, so no all doubt. three laboratories put their brain power together and we realized that our requirements uh, by, uh, by far were more similar than they were different. So we wrote a common RFP and through that request for proposals, those three laboratories were going to buy three multi-petascale supercomputers from a minimum of two winning vendors um, at about the same time. Um, the idea was that Argonne and Oak Ridge, uh, being so-called science laboratories, would have uh, diverse architectures. Um, Livermore could choose uh, which of the two winning proposals uh, they liked. And as it turned out, Oak Ridge selected the proposal from IBM and Livermore uh, very much chose IBM as well. And so we're building now, nearing the completion of the construction and implementation of a Summit supercomputer. And um, our colleagues at Livermore are doing the same for Sierra. So Summit and Sierra are very much sisters, uh, both built by IBM and their um, uh, Open Power Foundation partners. Walk us through the uh, walk us through the the tail end of that process. So you you know, I guess the interesting thing. Uh, 
from all of this is at the end of the day, you're also actually a customer yourself, and that is that you're at the bleeding edge of technology, you're at the bleeding edge of science, uh, but you still go shopping for components yourselves. And I guess this is there's an important compa- uh, key takeaway that I just took out of that, and that, that you know there may have been a time when when the types of science organisation that you are would need to build your own boards and chips. But these days, what what I'm hearing is that you're effectively buying common off-the-shelf components yourselves. Uh, in this case, you've gone out through a request for proposal. You've got that RFP back in from various vendors. You've seen the benefits of, I guess, uh, what you described before as the open power platform, and particularly, uh, I guess, what the Power9 chip's going to bring from IBM. Uh, you've then gone down the path of, of designing a, a couple of systems, in, in this case, uh, Sierra and then Summit, uh, and I remember reading that Summit's going to be like you know five or ten times more powerful than what you've currently got, uh, which you know is difficult for people to get their head around because you know, the scale that you're already at is, is very large. But you've effectively gone to market yourself as a consumer and found the best possible product off the shelf, but you're using it at a, a level that most folk are not going to do. Tell tell us about sort of that process of going to the market, the RFP. And then I guess specifically what you're doing with IBM in, in the types of systems, because at the end of the day, they seem to be off the shelf machines, but you're wedging in lots of extra widgets, lots of GPU, lots of memory. Walk us through that piece of it, if you wouldn't mind. As large as our budgets are, we're well funded by the federal government to do what we do, but it's by no means uh, sufficient to have a complete ecosystem of technologies and and uh, products that's sustainable in the marketplace today. The scale of investment is is that which is required from much bigger companies that are leveraging sustainable business models. Um, and so um, there's this realization, indeed, that we're not going to uh, we're not going to spin our own chips. We're not going to build our own uh, networks and put it all together. But we're going to leverage the commodity market that's been advancing rapidly for uh, you know many years and then work with those companies, communicate our requirements uh, to them and give them an opportunity uh, to really, if you will, rev their engines, uh, build uh, at the limits of what their scientists and engineers can do in in responding to our RFP. And then uh, when selected, partnering with us to deploy a uh, world-class supercomputer that's really a unique scientific and engineering resource. Um, The components are um, commodity. These products can be bought on a smaller scale. When they're deployed in a massive way, we fill up whole data centers with computers that we operate as if it was one computer. Um, The energy efficiency is an overriding concern. Uh, We need to keep the total amount of energy consumed in a way that's manageable and affordable. And that's very much consistent with, uh, you know, the kinds of energy requirements people see from putting uh, large servers in the cloud. And so um, concern about performance and energy efficiency is very much driving a lot of this technology. Um, Yeah, so um, when someone um, is using our um, supercomputers with the software stack that's available, um, this is often scalable versions of the software stack that would be available um, in an enterprise or in the cloud to a a broader set of of users um, where they might be. So a lot of what you're saying there relates directly to the types of challenges that enterprise are actually having, and that is that you've got a much larger scale. Uh, You're you're talking about billions of dollars. 
uh, for the, the typical enterprise user, they're they're sort of talking millions at the most. Uh, but you know, your whole process of going out to the market for this RFP, selecting IBM uh, for various reasons, selecting the Open Power Platform. Uh, I, I'm really interested in getting into the detail now of kind of Summit, I guess, and that is that. Uh, I remember reading a one-liner along the lines that uh, uh, Summit's going to be the world's smartest supercomputer, um, particularly for open science. Uh, and, and it struck a chord with me because I've just been to uh, IBM's Think uh, 2018 event in, in Las Vegas. And one of the big themes out of that was around this whole smart concept of, you know, it's great to have lots of power and throw lots of money at things, but are you doing smart things and are you using AI and, and other capabilities to, to get better outcomes by being smarter? I guess now that you've been through this journey of cells over decades of building big computers, you used to build your own chips, now you're, you're working with the likes of IBM to use commodity off-the-shelf components, but you're building it at a warehouse scale. Um, the the one-liner that I really liked around, you know, Summit will be the world's smartest supercomputer really caught me. I made a note of that. Um, maybe just briefly tell us kind of why that is the case. What what drove the need to build a smarter supercomputer, and particularly the, the focus on AI and, and I guess what you're doing around deep learning? This notion of uh, the smartest supercomputer comes um, essentially from a, a vision that our laboratory director had. Our current computer, Titan, is also a GPU-accelerated hybrid supercomputer. We made that move back in 2012 when we deployed Titan. So we've been working on hybrid accelerated architectures for, for the, our users for the past five years. Um, and um, indeed, that's drawn to us new kinds of users and data intensive science uh, from the scientific area, experimental and observational data. Um, when we uh, selected the IBM proposal uh, of, again, a, a GPU accelerated architecture with these GPUs now very much tuned toward AI and deep learning, we all got very excited and our laboratory director, Thomas Zachariah, articulated this vision, you know, Summit's going to be the smartest supercomputer. Um, we've been repeating that. We like that idea. And we're encouraged uh, in the sense that um, we have a lot of new application scientists coming to us uh, to run deep learning at scale, to do learning and training of areas, applications, maybe where there's not a mathematical model, but there's only a, a abundant data. So um, you know, what makes a supercomputer smart? Well, it's certainly the the power of the the you know the fast Power Nine processor coupled to uh, these uh, deep learning tuned GPUs, the the Voltas from Nvidia. Um, but these are connected through a coherent memory interface, a high bandwidth interface called NVLink that connects the Power Nine to the Volta. But it's also abundant memory where you need it. Um, there's high bandwidth uh, memory associated with the GPUs, the DDR4 memory, a, a lot of it associated uh, with the Power Nines. And then there's new levels in the memory hierarchy. There's an NVMe device, uh, 1.6 terabytes right there on the node, available to be used as programmable memory, um, write uh, once, read memory, many kinds of applications, for example but also to help um, as a burst buffer to um, supplement the I.O. bandwidth uh, to disk when you need to output a large amount of memory. And so it's, it's in that context, both the push of these new applications, but also this data intensive, uh, bandwidth intensive, bandwidth rich architecture uh, that IBM and their open power uh, partners have, uh, have proposed and now have delivered uh, to our laboratory. 
I, I mean, there's a tsunami of uh, uptake of AI in general, and 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 we've we've had a, a a wave of focus on machine learning, but we're now sort of seeing, I guess, a transition to how we now apply uh, deep learning, which is a whole different challenge uh, to this. Uh, who are some of the people that are lining up to you? I mean, I'm sure there's a long list of people who are lining up, putting proposals forward to get access to the new machine. Uh, uh, and, and from what I understand, you're only a couple of months away from turning this thing on after years of work. I mean, you talked about uh, putting this thing together as early as 2012, 2013. So there's a number of years of, of design and business challenge around that. Now you're at the engineering challenge of working with IBM to stand this thing up. In a few months when you switch it on, uh, who are the sorts of people that are lined up and, and potentially approved and signed off to get on this machine and, and work with it? I understand you've got teams from all kinds of organizations and even I heard mention of Uber. Uh, who's going who's gonna to be first off the rank, as it were, I guess, or not so much first off the rank, but who, who's going to come and use this thing and what types of use cases or workloads are you seeing them bring to you? We start working on applications uh, right at the beginning. Now, the first thing we did after we signed the contract and announced the contract with IBM is we put out a call for application readiness uh, projects. And we solicited openly for teams to come work with us to get their application ready for Summit. And that was in early 2015 when they delivered those proposals. And we did that. We were planning to do to work on eight projects because that was of a similar scale to what we had done for our last project. But we received um, 29 uh, proposals and 28 of them we considered to be excellent. So we um, changed our budget, restructured it a little bit, and we started working on 13 of these projects within what we call our Center for Accelerated Application Readiness. Uh, we like to think of it as uh, like Rain, Wayne Gretzky said, you have to you know, skate to where the puck is going to be. You have to start working on these applications uh, right at the beginning in, in order to match the application with the new supercomputer when you turn it on. We've been doing that for the last three years. In 2014, um, I would say the, the deep learning wave hadn't really washed over us from science and engineering. So we got uh, mainly uh, traditional simulation science proposals from our Department of Energy and university-based users. These are things like understanding fusion reactors, tokamak fusion reactors like the kind that are being built in France, a combustion project studying combustion science for engineering, supernova explosions to try to understand the abundance of the heavy elements in the universe, and um, global seismic tomography, trying to take earthquake data inverted in order to produce a tomographic image of the Earth's mantle on a global scale. Um, and so those are the projects that have been going on. But again, we asked for that more than three years before we were going to turn Summit on. So we had a transition, a transition to an early science program, and we issued another call for proposals in December 2017. We thought we might get 20, 25 responses. Uh, we got over 60 responses this time. It was overwhelming for us. Um, and um, about 10 of those are in the area, area of uh, deep learning specifically. Um, and so that's the way our world is changing. Over that period, we now have uh, new teams coming to us proposing new kinds of applications. We wanted to allow for that kind of change. Um, and so we were very satisfied when our plans worked out that way. So we have over 60 teams right now um, on the phase one of Summit that we've already accepted. It's very early days. We accepted about 25% of it in December, and they've been working on their application readiness proposals. Um, there are indeed um, teams from um, 
big industrial concerns, multi-industrial companies, um, universities. Um, we have new applications in, um, again, experimental and observational data. They are preparing to give us a proposal that's due at the 1st of June. And then after we evaluate those proposals, we'll announce who our early science projects are going to be um, uh, later in June. Um, that's who's going to get the first chance at Summit when we're able to accept it and fully make it available to scientific users. At almost the same time, um, there's an opportunity to write proposals for our main user programs that are going to begin in 2019. So those proposals are not, not with us yet. They're not turned in yet. We'll know later this year, later this summer or in the fall, who the winners are, and we'll be making announcements um, at that time. Uh, to be sure, it will be a broad array of science and engineering. It'll be um, business, uh, manufacturers, um, and many different areas of science. So uh, I can't say in particular yet who these teams are going to be. Um, we're going to have to stay tuned for at least a few more weeks before we're able to announce who our early science users are going to be. So I imagine there's a, there's a significant amount of competitive edge that these companies are going to get from using the, the technology. I mean, I, you know, when you were talking earlier about the fact that this is funded by the government, that people effectively get use of this for free, they've still got to, they've got to have a good use case and it's got to give back to society. There are still very significant competitive advantages to those people who are getting to use that. I imagine there's also a, a challenge from yourselves in that engineering-wise, uh, at some point, um, there was a shift from traditional parallel computing that we might have known decades ago is sort of uh, you know, the likes of PVM and MPI to nowadays where we're talking, I, I guess, a, a new architectural form that's moved into uh, stream-styled analytics. And so you're seeing a TensorFlow become a thing and, and uh, you're having to engineer towards those types of use cases that people might have learned about by building mini supercomputers in the cloud and then some uh, smaller ones themselves and now they're coming to you at industrial scale. Um, Tell us a little bit about the sort of, let's get into the detail of, of deep learning specifically. I mean, the idea here from what I'm, I'm hearing is that, you know, this wants to be the smartest supercomputer uh, available. People are lining up to, to throw AI problems at it. Uh, for, for folk who are listening and that aren't necessarily fully aware of what that actually means, could you maybe just give us a little bit of a, a, a initially a high-level run-through of kind of the types of challenges that people would bring to you in the form of uh, artificial intelligence and particularly deep learning, uh, what do those use cases look like? What sort of challenges are they bringing to you around uh, some of, you know, everything from the humanities and health and education through to some of the big engineering challenges? And, and specifically, I guess, you know, within the, the, the whole Open Power and Power9 IBM solution, how has that given you a competitive edge to kind of meet those needs? Um, yeah, so some of the kinds of use cases um, that are new are, for example, applications in uh, cancer pathology, um, the natural language processing of cancer pathology reports. Um, we have at Oak Ridge National Laboratory an Institute for Health Data Sciences, and they have taken on the challenge of trying to process cancer pathology reports from um, state-based um, health centers across our nation. You can end up with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of records. And if you can integrate that information, you may be able to learn new um, aspects about cancer pathology. Certainly, one person or a small team wouldn't be able to read all these documents effectively and learn from this vast amount of data. But with uh, natural language processing, we can learn about this. So, um, indeed, colleague at Oak Ridge is, is leading an effort to uh, apply uh, hierarchically trained 
neural networks um, on uh, Summit now. I'm using uh, these standard kinds of uh, um, frameworks, TensorFlow or Keras, these kinds of things that are available. Our engineers are working with um, engineers at uh, NVIDIA, at IBM, at Uber, uh, with uh, the Horovod framework uh, to port these things to uh, the uh, open power uh, architecture and scale them up massively across thousands um, of uh, Power9 and uh, tens of thousands of GPUs. So uh, it's very much the kinds of activities that others may do on uh, enterprise resources, but we're doing it at a scale that's unique to um, our mission. It, it, I guess there's a you know there's a scientific and, and, and mathematical challenge behind all of that. There's an engineering and coding challenge, uh, but across all of this, if, if you know what does it mean uh, in a general sense, and, and it's a no-brainer in some cases. But uh, in your world, I mean, when we think about databases running on general compute, uh, when we think of a faster CPU, we just sort of think we're getting faster screen refreshes. But when we think about the sorts of things you're doing and the type of research you're doing and the clients you've got. I guess there's an order, not just an order of magnitude gain, but there's also a different type of application you can bring to the the, the, the table as far as you know being able to put this kind of compute resource to to use to these challenges. Uh, I mean, what does it mean in a general sense when you bring these types of challenges to your platform, particularly what Summit uh, will be able to do uh, when you're doing, I guess, data ingesting and data uh, uh, consumption or digestion? Let's say at this this scale? I mean, there must be unique types of challenges that you can now uh, address uh, because of the type of engineering that you put into the system and, and what Summit will do and what the, the IBM Power Platform gives you that you may not have been able to solve before. Deep learning is really en enabled um, by and large by massive data. You need massive amounts of data to train um, these deep layered networks. Um, and that's a tremendous amount of uh, compute intensive activity. You need to be able to get the data into the processor, uh, train the network and get it out, distributed across massive resources. And so we're able to do that at a scale that has never been done before. And so these kinds of uh, applications are going to be enabled. In science, it's going to mean uh, brand new challenges can be solved rather than, for example, an electron microscopy of understanding materials layer by layer in two-dimensional images through deep learning, we're going to be able to, to create a 3D reconstructed images in all atomic resolution of complex materials uh, that are necessary for a wide variety of energy applications. Um, there's going to be applications in uh, trying to understand um, plasma instabilities for fusion energy reactors, understanding um, how to control these things and make um, fusion energy more sustainable. This is going to be very important for the ITER experiment that's being built right now in France. In terms of um, more aerodynamics, fluid dynamics, the grand challenge there is turbulence. And it's a huge activity, it's a huge problem. Scientists are training turbulence models to make um, understanding turbulent flow and reactive turbulent flow um, in a much more efficient uh, way. And so um, the scale of deep learning that's going to be enabled on a computer like Titan is going to offer, offer new scientific solutions, new breakthroughs.
So, Jack, it's been fantastic to, to get the opportunity to chat with you. Really exciting to see the sorts of things you're doing. I mean, it's just what's really interesting for me is, you, you know, at the end of the day, people listening with a traditional business problem as opposed to a supercomputer that, you know, they've, they've hopefully learned that you've gone through the same sorts of processes they would with going to market, finding the best technology. In this case, you've selected IBM and particularly their open uh, power platform and everything that the Power9 chip will give you and the systems in those as off-the-shelf platforms. Um, as a wrap-up, I wonder if you can just kind of give us some key takeaways around folk who want to work with your organization. Uh, what kinds of things should they, they be thinking about uh, if, they, if they want to approach you and, and put together one of those proposals to potentially get access to you know, what is going to be the, the biggest, smartest supercomputer uh, on the planet that you're building? So I would say that potential partners out there should think about the grand challenges um, in their area of work the thing that's out there that they know that they really need to be solved, but they've been making approximations for in order to get solutions done in a timely way. But if they would like to come and work with our uh, laboratory, with our user facility, they would have an opportunity to, to relax those assumptions, to go after the problem, maybe the dream problem that they've always wanted to solve. Um, imagine a situation where computing was um, unlimited because for uh, many uh, users today, uh, the computing at scale that we have is uh, something like unlimited. And they would go uh, you know, achieve um, uh, a dream breakthrough in their area of work, whether it's uh, engineering, um, data science, or simulation science. I think all those kinds of opportunities are what our users are doing um, um, today. In a real sense, um, we are helping make their dreams come through through their hard work and a lot of our hard work combined together. I like that. that that's uh, that's probably the, the most salient takeaway point from the entire thing. And thank you very much. Uh, Jack Wells, Director of Science at Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get to know you personally, get to know a bit about the organization. And, uh, and of course, uh, the whole journey you've been through with going to the market, selecting IBM as a partner to build this massive new machine summit. Uh, it's going live in a couple of months. We look forward to seeing that going live. And congratulations on that whole journey. Thanks so much for making so much time available. It's been just uh, great to get to know you and talk to you. It's my pleasure, Des. Again, thank you for joining us for IBM Power Systems from Here to AI podcast. If you're interested in learning more information about navigating the journey of implementing AI into your business, please visit ibm.com slash enterprise AI. I'm Des Blanchfield, and we'll see you next time on From Here to AI.